Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Mattermore Cronin, and today we're discussing the future of earthquakes. With us today is Carolyn Nguyen. Carolyn is a PhD student in seismology at the University of Washington. And as someone who's been living in California my whole life, it's I'm so thrilled to finally have someone on who's a seismological expert who I can ask all of my earthquake-related questions to. So, Carolyn, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. So I want to get into eventually, you know, the worst possible seismic events that could occur in our <laughs> lifetime, how likely that is, what all the implications of that are, how you can prepare for it. But first, I want to start with the basics so we can just start at some ground level knowledge of seismology and seismic events. So I guess to start, how would you explain the occurrence of an earthquake? Like, what is an earthquake? What causes it? Why are earthquakes part of, you know, Earth's natural phenomena? Okay, so I think on its most basic level, earthquakes happen because rocks are trying to move past each other and essentially they get stuck. So you have a fault in the ground, which is this planar surface, essentially this kind of break within uh, a rock. And you have one side that's trying to go one way and another side that's trying to go another way. Um, and in simple terms, like I was saying earlier, they get stuck. And so right. they're stuck, they're accumulating elastic strain and elastic energy. And eventually um, it gets to the point where the rock isn't strong enough to actually stay stuck. And so it slides past each other, or sorry, the two sides slide past each other really quickly. Um, and the energy, the elastic energy that gets released from those two rocks finally slipping past each other um, is what causes an earthquake. So. Right. In very simple terms, two pieces of rock slipping past each other really quickly, releasing all of this energy that's been kind of pent up as they've been stuck together is, um, I think, in the most simplest terms, what an earthquake is. Right. And that's the case with the San Andreas Fault as well, right, where there's all of this energy being built up and, you know, almost like winding up a spring where after some amount of time, there's just so much energy that it must be released. And... I've seen some stats around like, you know, that in any given year, there's a 3% chance of the next big like San Andreas earthquake happening. So if you push it out to like 30 years, it's almost 100% chance that there is going to be some, you know, relatively major seismic event. Does that that seem in line with with what you've you've been uh, researching? I haven't seen those specific stats, but I think, yeah, it really does come down to a statistics game. And um, it really just comes down to percentages, like you were saying, like there's a 3% chance in a certain amount of time. Um, but yeah, I can see that happening. It's not unlikely that some catastrophic event um, isn't going to happen on the San Andreas Fault. Uh, it's really just a matter of time. And whether it happens in our lifetime or the next lifetime is really up for debate, I would say. Right. But yeah. And I could see that happening. Yeah. And I want to touch a little more about the idea that there's this pent up energy and then it gets released. So I, I understand that that's what's mechanically happening. I guess my question is, why are seismic events occurring at all? Like, what would Earth be like if there were no seismic events at all? Because it seems like with so many of Earth's processes, it's operating in this Goldilocks type of scenario so that it can maintain the proper conditions suitable for life. Like, you know, the temperature is always being adjusted in the right sort of way. And, you know, there's this 
magnetic shield yeah, protecting us from asteroids and that sort of thing. So I wonder how seismic occurrences would fit into that model of the Earth, you know, making itself as hospitable for life. Yeah, so I would say that the main driver behind earthquakes occurring at all is the fact that we have tectonic plates and they're moving. Um, so the Earth is the Earth's crust essentially is broken up into all of these tectonic plates and they're trying to essentially reorganize themselves in order to, I think, in I don't know, equilibrate, I guess, is maybe the best way to fit it into your story is they're all kind of trying to get as comfortable as they can. And in order to do that, they're going to have to move past each other. And so it's these gigantic, rigid plates that are trying to reorganize themselves on the Earth's surface. And it's essentially them getting stuck or breaking apart in the process of trying to get where they want to go, essentially. So in the biggest sense, I would say it's, yeah, these plates just trying to reorganize themselves and kind of get out of each other's way or break each other up, which is like, for example, that's what's happening with the Himalaya mountains. It's two, it's just two tectonic plates running into each other. And so you get this giant mountain range, right? Like an accordion almost. Yeah, exactly. And then in the San Andreas example, like you were saying, that's two plates sliding past each other. Um, Right. And I guess like the way I had always thought about it, when you hear about like Pangea and all the continents used to be one and then they moved apart and they'll probably become one again sometime millions of years in the future. I always thought of it as like the tectonic plates were doing the moving, but really it's almost like they're surfing on top of what's beneath them where there's like this seafloor spreading where they're basically like creating brand new land and then that's sort of just moving the continents around like and you know i thought it was really interesting that iceland for instance is one of the youngest geological places like the ground in iceland is younger than than like most of the rest of the earth because it's just newly been you know bubbled up from from the mantle Um, yeah so that that's an interesting misconception that i feel like a lot of people have yeah i think that that is still kind of uh something that scientists geologists geophysicists are still trying to figure out is what is really driving plate motion because there is like you were saying these mid-ocean spreading centers where you're creating new oceanic crust and they're kind of pushing plates apart but then there's Mm -hmm. also this driver where um if you have a subduction zone where you have one plate that's subducting under the other one it gets to a point where the plate that's going down into the mantle actually becomes um negatively buoyant buoyant sorry and it starts dragging itself down so there's also this thing called slab pull so Mm. you have push which is kind of like pushing the plates along and then you have slab pull where the slab is like actively pulling itself into the mantle due to gravity so there's definitely i think factors that are um coming into play but yeah those subduction zones those are some of the most dangerous types of seismic events right i mean that was i believe that was the the Kanto earthquake near Tokyo, which created a tsunami. And, Mm -hmm. you know, initially what happened is there were all of these fires that spread out throughout the city after this earthquake. So everyone Mm -hmm. went down by the river to get away from the collapsing, burning buildings. And then they were right in the path of this massive tsunami that just wiped out, you know, so many people. So, Like, I guess two things that I didn't realize about earthquakes before I started researching this is, A, that there's actually good results of earthquakes. Like, 
without seismic events, for instance, Los Angeles wouldn't be that great of a place to live because there wouldn't be mountains. The mountains wouldn't trap moisture. There wouldn't be fresh water. There wouldn't be groundwater. There wouldn't be as fertile soil. So in some sense, it's like earthquakes are kind of necessary for creating a great place to live. And then the other thing I didn't realize is that earthquakes are not just one natural disaster. They're often the trigger of other natural disasters like fires and flooding and landslides and, mm -hmm. and all these other things. So I guess like from your perspective, what are, you know, how do you think about earthquakes and all the implications that, that can result from them? Like, where do you draw the line? Because it seems like a lot of it could just be, you know, a lot of uh, the natural disasters, you know, other than the ones above ground, like hurricanes could be tied to seismic events at their root. Yeah. So I guess I'm wondering where like, to start. Like volcanoes, for instance, I never realized volcanoes were that related to seismic events. I guess it makes sense. Um, I would say that like the landscape that you see today might be more related to um, the entire subduction zone as a whole, rather than created by earthquakes themselves. Um, cause volcanoes are a result of, um, subduction processes that are going on underneath the ground. And mm. you do have earthquakes in places that you usually have volcanoes, but I'm not necessarily sure if you could connect the presence of a volcano to earthquakes happening, but they definitely happen in the same place. Mm. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure how much beyond like um, like fault scarps. So if you go um, along the San Andreas, you can see you can actually see in like aerial photography where um, scarps fault scarps have offset rivers, which is really really cool. Um, like you can see rivers that have been cut off and moved to the left because of the San Andreas just moving the land in between them. Hmm. But I think beyond that, they aren't as big of a shaper of landscapes. But at the same time, when you're talking about how they trigger other natural disasters, so one of the big things that comes after a lot of earthquakes is landslides. Mm. And so you can have a lot of um, uh, landslides or mass wasting events after earthquakes. Um, liquefaction is also a really big one, which I think is really right. interesting. I don't know if you know what that is, but um, essentially if you have a lot of moisture in the, in the soil and you shake it, all of that moisture... I'm actually not totally sure how liquefaction works. It's, I think it's actually really complicated. But um, essentially, you will get these giant geysers of sand coming out of the ground because of the way that um, liquefaction works. Right. That happened in New Madrid, which is an interesting case of where earthquakes happen in a really random place. And it also happened really um, in a really intense way in New Zealand when they had their big earthquake. And your house mm. can just literally sink into the ground. So yeah, it's almost like quicksand in a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's I guess scary. Was... It's, it's funny because like people seem to be the most obsessed with the Hollywood cinematic forms of disaster. So people yeah. are really, they love to worry about earthquakes or landslides mm -hmm. or anything that's like very dramatic. But, you know, when I looked into what has actually caused the most damage, at least in LA, the most damage was this, you know, this flood that occurred um, in the late 1800s. And yeah. so like sort of sometimes the less sexy uh, disasters can actually be a lot more harmful. 
Yeah. And in the big San Francisco fire that happened in, I think it was 1906. I hope I'm not getting that wrong. But the biggest problem was that they had a bunch of fires afterwards. And essentially, this was just burned by fires that happened. Because one of the big things that happens is, um, like, electricity, like, can just get offset. And there's a really, yeah, it's really easy to start fires after um, an earthquake, especially if all of your water mains are also just destroyed after a big event. And it's really get your resources back together. But yeah, I would agree that sometimes the worst effect of an earthquake is what happens afterwards, not actually during the earthquake. Right. Yeah, like during that great flood, people called the whole Central Valley of California the lake because it was yeah. just this giant lake and it was, you know, it was underwater for months to the point where a lot of people just gave up and moved out of the city. Yeah. And there's so many other things like when there's that much flooding, you know, like you said, the electricity gets messed up, you mm-hmm. don't have power, you can't, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of, you don't have proper sewage, so a lot of diseases will come up, there can be famine, because you don't get, get food. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I guess, like, it would be useful to think about what should someone do in an earthquake, or what should they do before, during, and after, to mm-hmm. sort of prepare themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of information you know there's a lot of uh you know rules of thumb around there like go to the highest ground or you know go underneath a really sturdy table or some people say go in the doorways that are good some people just say you know run outside like what what from your from your point of view what would be the best advice for someone as soon as you start feeling some shaking and it is in fact like a major earthquake like you know 7.5 or above what should someone do I think that the major rule of thumb that most people say is to get underneath a sturdy table, just like you Mm. said. Um, I know that there's a really big urge to run outside, uh, but one of the dangers of doing that is that something can fall on you outside, essentially. So Mm. there's a a lot of things like, um, like, I mean, power lines, trees, but also if you are around buildings with like brick facades or something and those start crumbling, there's just a lot more things that can fall on you. Um, I'm always though scared of saying that because there's also at least in, so I'm in Seattle right now. Um, there's a lot of unreinforced old masonry buildings that there's kind Mm. of been a push to try and like reinforce and make these buildings more safe. Um, and so sometimes it's, it's kind of a push or pull between, well, do you get under a sturdy table and potentially have like the whole building collapse on you or try and run inside and have something like hit you on the way out. So I would say go under a table unless you're in an extremely unsafe building and then maybe try and get out. But if you're panicking and you don't know what to do, go under a table. Um, I even saw there's this one like product where it's basically like an earthquake bed where if they feel shaking, it encloses you into this metal like (laughs) container and it has like water and and supplies and stuff. Yeah, that's like my biggest fear is it happening at night when I'm asleep and getting just woken up from it. I think that's terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, it's also a little bit um, not what you would expect as far as what buildings are the best in earthquake conditions like I know in the Lisbon earthquake it occurred when everyone was at mass and all the people in the churches had the worst effects of it because there were these stone buildings that didn't have Mm -hmm. a lot of give 
yeah. and then meanwhile all of the like prostitutes in the red light district where it was all like wooden buildings yeah. were pretty much spared so everyone yeah. in lisbon afterwards was like why has god you know slammed his wrath upon the good people in sunday mass and spared the harlots in the red light district um, but they didn't realize that it was because like the wood could sway a lot more and, and also the soil was was a lot better in, in those in that part of the city. So I guess what can you say about building structures and soil that that uh, affects how well different buildings can withstand earthquakes? Yeah, so I think you said a really important point that wood is a lot better than stone to begin with exactly mm -hmm. for what you said also is because it can have a little give. So if you're in a building that has really rigid materials, it's a lot more likely to kind of fracture and fall apart as opposed to wood, which can give a little bit and bend. Um, if you go to Japan, a lot of their structures are built out of wood because they are like very earthquake prepared. Hmm. Um, so there's definitely that idea of what the material of the building you're in um, makes a lot of difference. And then, yeah, the soil or the type of ground that your building is on is also really important. Um, so how compact the soil is. So if you have uh, a lot of Seattle is built off of sawdust, which is unfortunate. Mm. Um, a lot of fill sawdust, which is this really unconsolidated ground material. And it turns out that seismic waves travel a lot slower through unconsolidated material. And so if your house is on, say, built on sawdust, on top of sawdust, the waves that are causing all of this shaking are actually going to travel slower and you're going to shake for longer and it's going to feel more intense. Mm. Whereas your building is on bedrock. So something that's really rigid, um, and doesn't have a lot of give the waves are going to go through a lot faster and the shaking is going to seem like it lasts, um, shorter and isn't going to be as intense. So wow. the type of substrate that your building is on is also really important. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I live in, uh, Culver City in, in LA and it's pretty sandy the ground that the buildings are built on here and when yeah. we just had that earthquake like a few weeks ago it felt like it was shaking for minutes yeah. I mean I know it wasn't because it, we were, it weren't, wasn't that big of a magnitude to be that long but it didn't feel like 15 seconds or 30 seconds it felt like it was going on for a really long time and it almost felt like like you could feel the sandiness of just how everything was was, mm -hmm. you know, so almost maybe not fully liquefied, but it, it felt much more liquefied than how it yeah. normally feels. Yeah. And another thing, I mean, there's so many things to consider with how, where you are located relative to the earthquake is going to affect the shaking you feel. But another thing is if you, I'm not familiar so much with LA and if it's in a basin, I want to say you're in a basin. Um, but Seattle is located within a basin. And if you're near the edge of that basin, you can also feel effects from just the seismic waves being concentrated along that basin edge. So mm. there's other things like that. So the geometry of the substrate that you're on and what's right next to you and the building. And one of the things that I think is really interesting too is that um, a lot of people after, there was an earthquake a long time ago, well, not a long time ago, but um, in 2001 and or was it 98? Sorry, it was when I was little. Mm -hmm. My sister was downtown in one of the like tall skyscrapers, and I was like, oh my god, that's like probably the scariest place. Right. Was this the Northridge one? It was actually um, the Nisqually one. Oh. It's like a 6.8, um, and so you could like feel it, and it was during the day. It was like in the middle of the day. I was in fourth grade, I think. 
Um, and we had, we all got under our desks and then we were out at recess for like the rest of the day. Um, but as I got older, I learned that it's actually those kind of like big construction, like have to go through a lot of city planning, like those types of buildings are sometimes the safest to be in because they're actually under, um, the scrutiny of like seismic hazard preparedness, right. like you build a building so that you know that it's safe for an earthquake. Whereas any given like home that you're living in doesn't have to subscribe to these really strict rules about how safe it needs to be. So sometimes right. those big buildings is the safest because they've actually been paying attention to all of the guidelines for making it as safe as possible. Right. I know that Mayor Eric Garcetti in Los Angeles implemented a law where any new building being built has to meet these seismic safety standards, Mm -hmm. but they did not mandate that existing buildings be retrofitted. So a lot of the buildings, if they were built, you know, a long time ago, like the 70s, 80s, 90s, -hmm. they could be at risk. And especially a lot of the buildings that you know, they'll have the first floor is like for restaurants and retail shops. So they'll just be big glass windows. So they don't have as much stability as like the second and the higher floors. So it's almost like they're weak at the knees and then it could potentially collapse. And I don't know if you've seen the movie San Andreas with the rock. (laughs) I have, but commercials for it, but, but in that, in that movie, the rocks estranged wife is in this big building and he's like, get to the top, get to the top of the building. I'll pick you up in my chopper. And so she goes to the top. And then sure enough, the first floor of the building collapses. And then these other floors start collapsing. But because she's on top, she's sort of just like riding it down. And then the rock, of course, saves her in the nick of time. He's so smart. <laughs> <laughs> but is that the advice you would give? Like if, you, if someone finds themselves in a building like near the roof, where maybe there's not enough time to go down to ground floor. Like, would you recommend that they go to the 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 roof of the building? Yikes! Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> um, no one's make... gonna sue you if if they take your advice and die because they'll be dead. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really scary because sometimes your building can withstand an earthquake, and then like there's always I feel like some stories of people leaving their houses and then going back in and then having it collapse. So Hmm. I don't know. I think if you had someone that could come and get you on the roof, then yeah, maybe if your husband was a rock with a helicopter, I would say (laughs) you're a normal everyday person. I don't know. I don't know if I can answer that one. (laughs) Yeah, that's all right. Um, Another question I have is how to think about the level of seismic events so there are these richter scales right where it's like you know a four a five a six a seven an eight and nine magnitude earthquake you know the biggest one ever recorded was a 9.5 but you know a lot of people think that it's more linear but really it's an exponential scale i guess can you give a sense of what it would be like for our listeners to be in let's say a magnitude five versus a magnitude seven versus a magnitude nine, like what the difference would be like for someone experiencing each of those quakes. Yeah, so if you have anything I would say below a three, you might not even feel it versus a four or five, you're starting to get something that you're definitely gonna feel the shaking. We had a four in Washington a couple 
like a week ago and it woke people up. I slept through it. So it's yeah, kind of Kip slept through it too. <laughs> yeah, like I, I would sleep through it, but a lot of people were like, Oh my God, did you wake up? And I was like, Oh no. So that's when it's kind of like, are you a heavier or light sleeper? I would say it's like around a four. Um, when you're getting up to like five or sixes, that's when you'll like definitely start feeling it. Um, the one that I was in when I was younger was a 6.8. So that's the only like firsthand experience I can tell you about. But it was definitely like you can feel that shaking. Um, once you start getting up to seven, eights, nines, that's when you're going to have, especially eights or nines, that's when like stuff is going to be like shaking pretty hard. Things are going to start like falling off your shelves. Like buildings are going to be destroyed. Um, so yeah, when you talk about the scale, a six is 10 times as powerful as a five and mm. is a hundred times more powerful than a four. So just for me thinking about how I felt a 6.8 and then like the Tohoku was like around a nine and nine one in um, in Japan, like just thinking about having an earthquake being a hundred times more powerful than the one that I felt in grade school is kind of terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah, so and they're clustered, right? So like if you have a magnitude 6, like for every magnitude 6 there's going to be 10 magnitude 5s, 100 magnitude 4s. So it has that sort of clustering, you know, that that's sort of how it it's presented in the data. Yeah. Well, not necessarily in the same place, but if you just take a global catalog of how many earthquakes ever, there's been way more magnitude 4s than there has been like magnitude 9s. Right. Um, and I think that just, again, comes down to that whole idea of building up this elastic strain. Some areas are, can only sustain so much strain before they give. And so I think it just down to where can you find a region that is able to hold so much strain before it kind of gives in this catastrophic earthquake. Right. And that's a fairly recent development of global seismology where you're really looking at how the whole Earth's seismological events are connected Whereas yeah. it used to just be like, oh, Japan just cared about what happened in Japan and, yeah. you know, and each country just cared about themselves. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question I have now is what advances have we made in seismology in recent years and going into the future with like, you know, new technology, how good could we get at forecasting seismic events in mm -hmm. the future? Mm -hmm. Um. I think in terms of recent advances, I think the biggest thing that's happened for size, well, there's been a couple of things, but I guess in terms of like, one of the things is we've figured out that we can create earthquakes, we can induce earthquakes. And one of the big things that has happened with that is fracking and mm. wastewater injection. Um, so like Oklahoma has a bunch of little earthquakes all the time now because they're injecting water into the subsurface. So I think that's interesting. We figured that out. Um, another thing that I think is really interesting, which is actually what my research focuses on, is that um, we figured out that subduction zones and some strike slips, so San Andreas type faults, um, experience these things called slow slip events, which are essentially mm. slow earthquakes. So they're events that release the same amount of energy as a six or seven earthquake, but they happen over the course of weeks to months to years. So we don't even feel them. Mm. Um, and so we've essentially been learning about what are the different um, spectrum of slip modes that can happen along a fault, specifically at subduction zones, because that's where you do see the biggest earthquakes. And so I think that's where a lot of seismology 
um, has focused in terms of like hazard aspects is on subduction zones because they can have the biggest earthquakes. Um, I would say those are the biggest advances technology-wise. The West Coast of the U.S., is a little bit behind. I would say Japan is by far the most advanced in terms of their seismologic research. Hmm. They've put a lot of money into their instrumentation. They have an amazing array of seismic monitoring stations, GPS stations, onshore and offshore. Um, I think that's one of the, that might be another big thing is just having offshore instrumentation. Um, A lot of where the potential earthquake would happen is actually under the water, offshore. Um, of like Washington, Oregon, and Northern California. And so the problem is we don't really know a lot about what's going on down there because we have no instrumentation whatsoever. Hmm. Um, So a big thing that's come out is ocean bottom GPS, which might not seem like it's very related to seismology, but using GPS information is actually really important for studying seismic events. Um, So getting offshore instrumentation And so that kind of leads into my next point, which is that there's this thing called, um, oh, what is it called? Shake alert, which is what. Right. I know everyone in L.A. was talking about that with the recent quakes, but a lot of people were pissed that that shake alert didn't properly warn them for the last one that happened. What was the reason there? What happened? Yeah. So shake alert is still in its very young stages. Um, and I think one of the problems with it right now is that they're being overly careful with, um, false earthquakes. So one of the things Mm -hmm. that happens is like when you're working through this new algorithm of how to warn people is that you get a lot of false alarms. So something, it thinks that there's an earthquake. And so I think one of the things is they're being overly careful and they're not letting every little thing be sent to your phone, which is probably a good thing because it would... You'd be getting it all the time, and then people would just be like, oh, another earthquake, and they probably wouldn't take it seriously. And then when a real one happened, maybe they would just be like, oh, it's just another shake alert earthquake. Right. Um, There's so many earthquakes going on all the time that, you know, I've heard that the U.S. Geologic Survey has an alarm that goes off if no earthquake has been detected in 12 hours. Because that must mean the system's broken, because (laughs) there has never been 12 hours without an earthquake in the history of us recording earthquakes. (laughs) So, yeah, but personally, I would like to know that, oh, there's a, you know, X percentage likelihood of an earthquake happening today or this week, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, even if it's even if it's wrong, you know, most of the time, it would be Mm -hmm. good just to sort of have it in the back of your head. Yeah, I think I think the problem is that I don't know with how much certainty we would be able to say that, especially on a day to day basis. I'm not necessarily sure if. Um, it would change too much. I think it would probably be more of a long, longer forecast just being like, you know, every single day you live in LA, there's this much of a chance you're going to feel an earthquake. And then maybe it'll go up a little bit when there's a big earthquake because you'll get aftershocks and things like that. But forecasting earthquakes is, I'm going to say somewhat confidently impossible. I don't think, I don't, I'm not very confident that we'll ever be able to say there's an earthquake, it's going to be this big and it's going to happen in two weeks. Right. Well, I've heard that prediction is not possible but forecasting with just raw probabilities is yeah. sort of the name of the game yeah um, and even that can be wrong unfortunately right the weather <laughs> so I'll, I'll ask the question that has been on my mom's mind in particular okay. which is you know she's she's been worried about earthquakes for a long time in la i mean we've lived in la for a long time to the point where she's like 
uh, like all the earthquake predictors that she watches on YouTube are saying, oh, the big one is definitely coming in the next few years. Like the likelihood of it coming in the next decade is really high. And my mom's even thinking about maybe I should go move to Buffalo with my family or move somewhere else where it's it's uh, more safe. Um, you know, I guess like for someone who is considering whether to move out of L.A. or not, what would you say to them as far as how reasonable that decision would be? I think that's I honestly think that's pretty reasonable. If you're living near a big fault like the San Andreas or on a subduction zone like me in Seattle, I think you have to consider that when you are deciding to se to settle down somewhere because I mean it could happen tomorrow or it could happen a hundred years from now. So it's right. possible maybe she'll move to Buffalo and like it'll never even happen and she'll be like, why did I move? Or it could happen in like a week. Um, right. So I, I think that that's a perfectly fine um, way to look at it. It's kind of just like balancing your risks and what you're willing to what you're willing to risk essentially. Right. <laughs> maybe happen or maybe it will tomorrow so i think it's totally valid um and if you have like like she has earthquake insurance on our house and so if there was a big earthquake then at least like the cost of the damage would be covered and then i guess the other risk is that you know she could get hurt during the yeah, earthquake um, but i guess like how much do you think the lingering effects of, of some big earthquake would affect a city like Los Angeles as far as like the real estate value, like just like, you know, the stock market, the, like what would be the economic impact of someone who owns a house in LA, has a business in LA, works in LA, and then the big one comes? Like, do you think it's yeah. going to be a speedy recovery? Do you think it's going to like, it could really impact LA as a viable city for the next decade? Like, yeah, what, what do you think? If it's a really big one, I think it would be pretty catastrophic for LA because one of the things is I think a lot of the infrastructure in any big city that experiences a big earthquake um, that isn't, I'm not saying LA isn't prepared, but any big earthquake can just destroy, I think, any city, no matter how maybe prepared it is. One of the things that I think about for LA is um, the way that LA is built is that it takes advantage of a lot of geologic structures to begin with. So a lot of mm. like where the highways go are essentially like fault strands. And wow. so, yeah, so there's the potential to have just like the entire, not the entire, but a lot of your highway and transportation infrastructure like destroyed. Um, it's also, I think a lot of the way LA gets its water, um, mm those kind of like low points in the geology, which are also usually along fault strands are these like huge cement pipes that are just being pumped into LA. So if you potentially lose all of your transportation, a lot of your water, electricity would probably be destroyed. I think the biggest thing for cities is that people are going to try and get out essentially. Like it won't yeah. be a place to live. And so if you have um, a business there, there's not going to be anyone coming to your business. If you have a house there, you might not even be able to like get to your house. Um, right. And the other thing that kind of scares me is that at least the current federal government isn't too fond of California. So <laughs> you could see a scenario where the Trump administration is basically like, oh, you know, this is God's retribution and, you know, their liberal way of life and gay marriage yeah. and all that stuff they were just asking for it and then 
maybe not giving the aid yeah. that you know would be given under like the Obama administration or or a more liberal administration. Yeah, your best chance might be like celebrities who live in love yeah. LA, which is kind of how I feel like Houston rallied a lot better after um, Hurricane Harvey than New Orleans did after Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> right, and like yeah, Puerto Rico got had a pretty you know raw end of the deal with, yeah. with their disaster, Hurricane yeah. Maria. Yeah, um, I think they're still feeling the effects of that, <laughs> but but yeah, I think it would be really bad for for LA if you had a huge earthquake. Yeah. Now, another interesting factor with earthquakes and just seismic activity in general is climate change. It seems like there is some correlation between climate change and increased seismic activity. Have you looked into that at all? Or is that something that's that's on your mind as one of the factors in this increased risk? I have to admit that I haven't really considered that. I'm interested to hear maybe what you have heard about it though or yeah i mean i guess at like a very high level it's that you know there is average global temperature increase and Mm -hmm. the increased heat goes hand in hand with increased seismic activity and okay and you know i love thinking about like what's the worst possible thing that could actually happen (laughs) somewhat realistically yeah and it's pretty amazing like especially yellowstone i mean Mm -hmm. if yellowstone could blow and basically wipe out most of the u.s and there's Mm -hmm. even these plans that like nasa put in place this plan to like inject cold water into yellowstone to cool it down but apparently it would take like thousands of years and it like would cost just a tremendous amount of money so it's not like that reasonable of a solution and yeah um but yeah maybe it might be good now to get into like the future scenarios of of what's the worst thing that could reasonably happen and mm-hmm. all right so carolyn what in your mind is the reasonable worst case scenario for the future of earthquakes worst case scenario um for like here like the u.s or for like anywhere in the world or you can think of it either way like Worst case in the U.S. maybe, and then also just global. I mean, you know, I don't know, maybe Iceland is like the the biggest threat or Yellowstone. I'm, I'm not sure what your perspective is, but in your in your mind, in our mm-hmm. lifetime, what would be the worst possible scenario that's still somewhat reasonable probabilistically? I think the worst case scenario would be having an entire subduction zone, so the entire length of a subduction zone. So if it was... I'll I'll just talk about worst case scenario for the U.S. I think mm-hmm. my perspective living in Seattle, which I also think could potentially be a global problem, is if the entire Cascadia subduction zone, which runs essentially from Vancouver Island in Canada all the way down to Northern California, so Cape Mendocino, if that entire fault, which is hundreds of miles long, all ruptured at the same time. And you had a giant earthquake where you had shaking all along the coast and then all the catastrophes that go along with it, like we were saying, like fires, landslides, all of those things. And then to make it worse from this huge um, earthquake, you also have a huge tsunami. Um, 
And the interesting thing with tsunamis is that they can go both ways. So we could mm-hmm. have a tsunami that comes and destroys our coast. And then we can also send one out across the ocean, which could be felt in Japan, the Philippines, all of like the Indonesia, Southeast Asia area. I think that would be the worst case scenario because it wouldn't only affect us, but if it is a big enough tsunami, you can have somewhat catastrophic uh, things happen in countries across the ocean, which I think is kind of crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's scary to think about. Well, I I have a similar, I guess a similar worst case, which is, well, first of all, timing wise that it does occur in our lifetimes, Mm -hmm. that would be bad. Mm -hmm. And I guess the other factor for my worst case is that we don't recover as well as we could, meaning there's not enough aid given to people. And so it it really does harm, you know, not only California and cities like LA, but it also really harms the economy because there's so much, uh, you know, California produces more GDP than almost all countries, uh, except for a few. And that could lead to a global you know, stock market crash, and it could just have far reaching global implications. And it's kind of interesting. So Albert Brooks wrote this book called 2030, where he predicts what will happen in the year by the year 2030. Mm -hmm. And in his scenario, he has the big earthquake happens in California. And simultaneously, the national debt is so great, that this is kind of like the straw that breaks the camel's back and all yeah. of our debtors like basically say, Hey, like the U S dollar is going to be totally valueless. Like all bonds will be valueless unless you can pay up like a big chunk of your debt now. So Calif- so the U S ends up selling California to China <laughs> and, and I'm not saying that's likely, but it's, it's a, it's a useful way to think about how like one event can sort of have all of these sort of global implications um and then i guess like internationally the worst case from from my research has been that the most densely populated areas Mm -hmm. that are near the greatest seismic events like seismic hazards are china india and java so Mm -hmm. if a major earthquake occurs in one of those areas we could see the first ever million death plus earthquake uh, yeah so most you know i think the biggest death toll has been like a hundred thousand or thereabouts so far mm-hmm. so but because there are so many more people living in big cities now and mm-hmm. you know especially a lot of these areas like especially java they don't have the best construction or earthquake preparedness like not as good as you know japan like you were saying yeah so that would be a really terrible situation and then i guess if we're saying like the absolute worst possible thing that could happen it would be something like yellowstone like just bubbling up or or iceland i mean volcanoes have wiped out more than half of all species on earth like prior to us like that Mm -hmm. has been a major way that species have been wiped out like massive volcanoes that release carbon monoxide and then that like creates a blanket where not enough heat comes in. So then there's like this almost like a nuclear winter, but it's caused by natural events. So, yeah. you know, that's not directly related to earthquakes, but that would certainly be very terrible for, yeah. for humanity. Yeah. 
I feel like the closest thing we've gotten to that was that volcano that erupted in, was it Iceland? And then they had to shut down like air traffic for like two weeks. Yeah. Well, the biggest natural disaster that we have in recorded history was in Iceland. And there's, there's even this story of like the fire priest where like all of the people in Iceland, they basically Iceland is just one giant volcano, like one giant active volcano. Yeah. And, and, and like, because all of this like nasty stuff was spewing out, it basically infected all of the animal that would graze off of the ground. And then when people eat the animals, it would infect them and make their bones brittle. And so the only people that really fared well were people that ate from fish in the ocean, Mm -hmm. um, you know, rather than freshwater fish or like land animals or even crops grown with the soil that had been infected. So, and there was just fire spreading all over Iceland. And there's this one dramatic story of this priest who rang the bells. So everyone came up to the highest point where the the church was. And he gave this sermon about how like, you know, we will overcome this, like by the grace of God, we will be all right. And the magma was coming right up to the church. And by the time he finished the sermon, the magma stopped. And they were like, praise the Lord. Like (laughs) he saved us. The fire priest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it just shows like it really. And also Iceland is so isolated that it's not like they could get aid easily from from others. Um, Yeah. But it's it's useful that at least now in modern times, we can pretty much deliver aid wherever. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, but yeah, maybe we turn it around and think about the best case scenario now. Best case scenario. So in your mind, what's the best case scenario for the future of earthquakes, let's say, in our lifetime? Um, I'm not sure if I totally understand that question. Well, I guess but... it, I guess because some level of earthquakes is always likely. So within uh, statistical probabilities. Yeah. How how non bad can it like would it reasonably be? in in our lifetime or like or do you think it's pretty inevitable that there will at least be you know one or a few catastrophic earthquakes if not in the u.s then somewhere around the globe in our lifetime i think that the best case scenario within our lifetime is that instead of um like our entire subduction zone going at the same time it's not clear if that actually happens and it might be more likely that just pieces of it go off at different times so I think best case scenario would be maybe only the part underneath organ goes off. And so you have really bad shaking um, on parts of the West Coast, but the entire coast wouldn't be completely destroyed. So then in terms of this, like being able to get people aid and people having resources, it would be a lot better as opposed to just the entire coast being kind of destroyed. It would maybe just be a small part of it. But then I think we could kind of like band together and help each other out instead of all of us just being kind of screwed. Uh, So I think, yeah, best case scenario just in general would be instead of having this one huge event releasing all the energy at one time, it would be that one event kind of split up into smaller ones, Um, which is kind of what you see in California. You guys have little earthquakes all the time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're not building up for a big one, but I think it would be better to probably have all of those little ones all the time instead of having a really big one more often because the little ones aren't happening. Right. But I think also for the future, just like 
preparedness is going to be a big thing. Um, mm-hmm. Like, like, like you were saying, having building codes being up to standard, which is not really the case in a lot of places nowadays. Um, people just like having um, earthquake kits, like small things like that. So I think also just like education is a big part of it. Cause some people just, there was that big New Yorker article that came out a couple of years ago. And I feel like that was what woke a lot of people up to like the big earthquake that could happen on the mm. West coast. And before that it was like kind of alarming how not worried about it people were. And I think there's still kind of, especially like even in Seattle, because we never get earthquakes. I feel like people are like kind of afraid about it, but they're still under this mentality. They're like, Oh, well it's not going to happen while I'm alive. So I think education will be a big part of it too. Just helping people understand like why these earthquakes happen, how you can be prepared for them. Like, things like simple things like that that i think could be kind of easily spread out yeah preparedness is so key i mean my mom has made earthquake kits for me and like my siblings so that in our car and under our bed we have a backpack that has like like a pair of socks pair of shoes a crowbar a flashlight a couple granola bars a couple water bottles she's smart (laughs) i know everyone thinks she's like you know crazy to be preparing for this kind of stuff but it'll no. won't seem crazy if and when it happens yeah yeah that's the one thing that someone told me is having shoes like i'd never really thought hmm. about that but they were like what if it happens this was kind of worst case scenario they were like what if it happens in the middle of the night and all of your windows have broken and you're in bed yeah. like what are you going to, you're going to have to walk across like broken glass. And so now whenever I, whenever someone's like, what should I have in my prepared kit? I'm like shoes. Right. <laughs> so yeah, she's on top of it. She's smart. Yeah. <laughs> That's what everyone should have. Yeah. And then your, your point about the San Andreas fall or some other fall, not rupturing in its entirety, but having mm-hmm. more of a, you know, a less disastrous, uh, you know, effect that seems to hopefully be the case with San Andreas, where I've read that there are some other faults that would sort of absorb some of the shock so that it's likely that we would go, you know, we would have an earthquake between like, you know, up to, let's say, 7.9. But it's mm-hmm. unlikely that it would be higher than 7.9 just because mm-hmm. of the models that they've made where at a certain level it'll be like absorbed. So yeah. hopefully that's that's the case. Yeah. Um, and. Cause the San Andreas is definitely like the major fault down there. Like it is the fault boundary or sorry, the plate boundary between like the North American and the Pacific plate. But like you said, there's a lot of other like pretty major faults that are also taking up a lot of that strain. So there was mm-hmm. that big earthquake that happened down there like a couple weeks ago. Right. It was like, yeah. a, was that like a seven? I think it, or, Yeah, it was like a seven. I think it was in like Bakersfield. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was on like one of those kind of like fault, other fault strands. So there's mm-hmm. like five or six, maybe up to like 10 of these like somewhat minor to major fault strands that kind of accommodate the same type of motion as the San Andreas. And so I think, yeah, that's definitely helping the San Andreas kind of put along and not take up all of the strain all by itself. Right. Like I, I have this map open, which shows the worst parts of the fault as far as their risk hazard there's actually this if anyone's curious you can look at the global earthquake model and you can just google it and it'll show a hazard map of like the biggest hazards and also a risk map and an exposure map which all give sort of a different statistical model of how at risk we are and like the biggest 
risk area for San Andreas Fault seems to be like right around where Coachella is. Um, <laughs> in previous disasters, Coachella Valley has actually been flooded and it has become a lake. So who knows, the future Coachella Music Festival might be underwater. Yeah, <laughs> that wouldn't be good. That'd be the worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think now let's let's get into the most likely because that's that's really I think what a lot of our viewers are going to be curious around is what is actually likely to occur in our lifetime and what reasonable preparations and decisions can we make now that will better position us for that likely future. Most likely scenario. So this comes back down to the whole idea of what we were talking about earlier about prediction versus forecasting. Right. And I think I was just looking at this the other day, but I think it was something like there's an 80% chance in the next 50 or a hundred years that we would have a major earthquake on the subduction zone. So somewhere along um, the West coast, I'm mm -hmm. not completely sure what the same statistic would be for the San Andreas. Um, but there are definitely places that you can look that up and just see what are the kind of broad statistics. But yeah, unfortunately, it's you're not going to get down to more than like a 50 to 100 year interval in terms of like the forecasting and how likely it would be. Um, so people always hate it when I say this, but I always say like it could happen tomorrow or it could happen after we're dead. Right. <laughs> so. Right. I'm not very helpful when it comes down to that. Well, that's um, good. I mean, that means you're a good seismologist because that's, you know, that's, I mean, from my research, it does seem like that's the case. You can give prob probabilities, but you can't say when it's going to happen. Yeah. It's frustrating. I think a lot of people think that there's a huge conspiracy theory, like behind seismologists, like we all know, <laughs> we're not telling anybody. Oh, yeah. They're like, yeah, I know. Yeah. I get that you don't know, but just tell me when you're taking a vacation out of town. Yeah, like, Give me a little nudge, nudge. And... <laughs> it's like, ah. Um, yeah, it's crazy how many people I tell them that I study earthquakes and everyone immediately is like, so when's a big one? I'm just like, oh, no. <laughs> um. But yeah, and then in terms of just like being prepared, just like we were talking about earlier, just like having an es escape kit isn't really the right word, but like just a kit with you. And it's good that you have them in multiple places too. Like you should have one at your house, like yeah, by your bed in case you're sleeping. And you should also have one at work. And then the other one that kind of scares me sometimes is you should have one in your car. Um, right, yeah. That's the one I always have. Yeah. So what's a... What's the deal with escape plans? Because I've heard some seismologists say, oh, you need to have an escape plan. Like if yeah. you can't get in contact with your significant other or your mm -hmm. roommate or whatever, you yeah. must have a plan for what to do. Like what would you recommend as far as escape plans? Yeah. So like one of my best friends, Sarah, she has an escape plan with her friend Payvan and they're like, OK, if the big one happens, we're meeting here. So mm. just having like a meeting spot, really, that's like somewhere in the middle um, between you two essentially. Um, and if you want to get really like intricate with it, you can say, okay, if it happens when we're like sleeping and we know we're both at home, we'll go here. Or if it happens mm. during the day and we're working, we'll both go here. Um, but how would you get there if like the, you know, some of the, the traffic and the highways might get destroyed? Like, do you yeah. recommend that everyone has like a bike or maybe, maybe electric scooters? <laughs> <laughs> <Birds>. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
yeah, the the real question is like, what is the what is going to be the state of the roads? Because mm. one of the things that I'm afraid of is that like all of the bridges in Seattle were built probably before anyone was really thinking seriously about seismic hazards. And so one of my biggest fears is all the bridges are just going to go. Mm. And then if that doesn't happen, you could potentially just have like huge cracks in the road. I don't know how big they would get, but it's also just like how good of quality are the roads going to be having a bike might be good. I think cars are going to be out of the question. Traffic is going to be yeah. just like from the get go. But yeah, I think having those meeting places be walkable places, which I don't know, might not be possible in some circumstances, depending on how far away you're living from your loved ones that you want to make this plan with. But I would try and make it somewhere that's pretty in the middle of you. Maybe avoid bridges in case any of those go. Mm -hmm. uh, a bike could be helpful. But like I said, who knows what the roads are going to look like. Um, right. There's also the risk of looting and violence and, you know, yeah. law and order going out the window. And Yeah, that's also another scary prospect of that. I was thinking about that today, actually. I was, like, planning on going to REI, and I was like, if it happened, like, that would be a great place to be because you'd be right by REI. But then I was like, oh, I guess I'd have to be one of those people that's just, like, stealing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, I think that's also I know another. I have like an ice axe that I could use to defend myself but if oh, other people yeah. have guns I don't know how <laughs> how much that'll help <laughs> yeah. yeah but um yeah the other thing is if you're living in somewhere where the tsunami would actually impact you knowing where high ground is a lot of places have um, tsunami evacuation routes so knowing that would also be really important right I mean, if I learned anything from the movie San Andreas with The Rock, it's that you should go to higher ground. Yeah. And they're like, but but The Rock, like, everyone's going this way. And he's like, trust me, you got to put your trust in me. Go to the high ground. So everyone should take The Rock's advice there. Yeah, take take the high road. <laughs> yeah, so I guess for my most likely, I mean, the numbers that I found were that basically – at least as far as the San Andreas Fault is concerned, the last big earthquake was in 1680, so over 300 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the cycle between those big earthquakes along the San Andreas Fault is around 130 years. Okay. So we're something like 100, you know, 100 and some odd years overdue mm -hmm. for a bigger, or you could think of it as we're like 50% overdue mm -hmm. for an earthquake. So yeah. as far as what's most likely, it actually does seem most likely that the big one will occur in our listeners' average lifetime. Yeah. Um, given that most of our listeners are millennials and Gen Zs. Yeah. So, you know, I think given that, it's, it's really useful for people to just realize that this is not some far-fetched chance. Mm -hmm. It is far-fetched that it'll happen in any given year, but yeah. it's not far-fetched that it'll happen in your lifetime. So yeah. I think being cognizant of the types of buildings you're in, like what your sort of sleeping arrangement is, what the arrangement is at work. Like you said, having a different escape plan for each of the different areas where you typically go, having a plan with your loved ones, having in a you know bag, you know, if you own a house, maybe having earthquake insurance. Um, these are all like totally reasonable steps to take given the, the risks that we see. Yeah, I would agree with all of those. I think it, it's a smart thing to do, definitely. And even if it doesn't happen, then you were prepared nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'll have peace of mind. Yeah, exactly. 
And for you, I would say down in LA, you should have a lot of water in your, in your kids. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a good tip. Yeah. My, my mom, who's always thinking ahead, she was even saying, oh, we should get one of those big rain basins at our house so yeah. that you can collect rain and have fresh water. Cause she's like, you know, we have a pool, but, and we have the necessary materials to make that yeah. pool water drinkable if we need yeah. to, but yeah. that would only last us for, you know, few weeks or something especially if we're using some of that water to water the the crops and yeah. i think that's another thing if you can have your own source of food mm-hmm. or just have like you know a garage full of twinkies or something that'll store well yeah anything like, yeah yeah because yeah. like up here in the pacific northwest we have a bunch of lakes but it's pretty dry down there for you guys so yeah water is key <laughs> yeah Well, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. It's really been enlightening for me and I'm sure a lot of our viewers around the risks of earthquakes. Do you have any final final thoughts or words for our listeners? Um, I think kind of just harping on what I was saying before, it's just like get prepared, educate yourself. It seems like you did a really good job of researching all of these things beforehand. And I think even just doing a quick like 10 minute hour long search of just looking at like where you live, um, Mm. The USGS has a really cool thing that's called the Quaternary Fault, um, I don't know, database. And you can essentially go and look at a map of the US and it shows um, essentially their database for all of the faults that have been active in the last like 100,000 or so years. And you can go and look and see if maybe you're on a fault and you had no idea. So kind of educating yourself about the geology and the hazards around you, I think is probably the most important thing. Yeah, we are all that's good advice. (laughs) Awesome. Well, that's a good place to end it. So, thank you everyone for listening. This has been the future of earthquakes, and we'll see you next time. What will inevitably happen? The past, the present, and the future. Hey futurists, if you've made it this far, you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. It was created by the Walden Brothers, and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden Brothers also produced the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. 
To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.